You're listening to Zen Sandwich, a podcast that inspires thoughtful people like you to live in the moment, be mindful in a realistic, achievable way. My name is Mark Reed. I've been a college professor and a lawyer. Now I make handmade paper in Japan. Twice a week, I bring my research and thoughts or sit down with coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs to talk about their process. What lessons do they learn along the way and how you can make an impact in your world? Hey, here we are. My guest today is Ken Leong. Ken was an educator, still is in my opinion, and an author. He also worked on Wall Street for 20 years. He holds a bachelor's from the University of Wisconsin and a master's from NYU. He is the author of the book, The Zen Teachings of Jesus. You can find that on Amazon. I'll put a link in the description. I reached out to Ken specifically because I began noticing Ken's Facebook posts a long time ago, and we have many similar interests, Alan Watts, modern Buddhism, Western Buddhism, secular Buddhism, uh, slight nuance differences between those, Taoism. He writes intensively uh, thought-provoking passages, and his posts frequently draw comments and elaborate discussions from those reading them. Um, I also noticed something else, that Ken was very learned on Christianity, and he makes references to Bible passages, often finding parallels within Buddhist thought. I later discovered we had another similarity, being raised in a Protestant environment and discovering an interest in Buddhism as young adults. His Facebook bio describes himself as a writer, teacher, mathematical artist, philosopher, socially engaged human, and an economist with heart. With the exception of mathematical artistry, I can relate to uh, pretty much all of those. So, Ken uh, Leong, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much, Mark. So, uh, let's well, let's start with your background first. Uh, you were you were born in was it Hong Kong? Yes, I was. Okay. Yeah. How and when did you wind up in the United States? I came to this country. Um, in the 1974, I was 19 at that time, you know, so, um, okay. and, and um, I, I started you... at, at the University of Wisconsin uh, in, in the Madison. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's jump ahead then to working on Wall Street for 20 years right. and, Buddha, and Buddhism. How did those yeah. remotely work together? Um, I think I have spoken about that basically back in the 90s. And I said that uh, if you have a training as a Buddhist or a Taoist, then that actually would act to your advantage. Because if you look at how people invest and, and, and trade in stocks, what is the common issue? Is when people, uh, when, the, when the stocks go up, you know, everybody rush into the market to buy, to buy. and then when, <laughs> when, the, when the stocks, you know, fall, then everybody, you know, try to get out in a panic. Mm. But um, it's the opposite. It should be the opposite, right? Yeah, it should be the opposite. Yeah. So, so if you if you're a meditator, you know, and mm. or if you if you have some kind of uh, equanimity, you know, in your mind, you know, that that should really help you. Yeah, that's good. And, that... uh, <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I was not. Well, I mean, I traded for maybe two years, but most of the time, I was the risk manager. Uh, 
<laughs> I was the, the least liked person in the in the corporation because I was corporate <laughs> police, you know. Uh, yeah. But um, you know, I think it it suits my uh, my uh, temperament. Uh, which is that uh, I'm most often I'm the think tank, I'm the you know thinker, mm. or, and if you, if you will, I mean some kind of corporate intellectual. Uh, and, yeah, uh, it, it sounds like you should write. Yeah, your your next book should be the Dao De Ching for uh, stock investment. Uh, yeah, <laughs> buy, <laughs> right. buy low, sell high, right? Yeah. Uh, Okay, so uh, usually on this show, I take a um, a cursory glance at Zen thought or Buddhism, um, yeah. and that's by design. My intended audience is is regular people who maybe have little or, or no exposure to a word like Zen, other than its common use, you know, uh, as a buzzword for somebody calm, like that guy over there. He's real Zen. So my intention has been to bring a little more depth and definition uh, yeah. of uh, of that to um, a Western audience. So today I want to dive a little deeper with something that you mentioned the last time you and I spoke that, that stuck out to me, and that's the word intention. Yeah. And, uh, and specifically, intention versus consequences. It is intention the basis for morality in Zen or in, in Buddhism. You know, which is more important, your intended actions or the consequences you uh, face for what you do? That definitely intention, uh, because the results or consequences no one can predict, but uh, it's your intention. So if you set out to let's say kill someone, it doesn't matter whether it actually happened or not. I mean, if you have intention to kill someone, it's that intention that counts. Yeah. It's not you know whether it has gone is, uh, you know, it has succeeded or not. So, I mean, so it, the, the Buddhist concept of karma is totally based on volition and intention. Yeah. Well, you know, part of my background is in philosophy and uh, um, it, I, I like what you have to say about intention, but it does somewhat beg the question of, well, then what, what about a, a sort of, long-term moral view like uh, or a utilitarian view so in other words if i uh like is it okay to lie if my intention is to in my intention is to do some greater good if i'm lying to protect someone or you know something like that right so you are talking about the idea of the end justifying the means is that yeah, well, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not uh, arguing that point. I'm, I'm bringing you up in a sort of devil's advocate uh, role here. Yeah. Um, do do the ends ever justify the means? That's a very subjective kind of uh, question because I mean, you, 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 I mean, does everybody agree that that's the end and and it's a good end, right? Hmm. So. If uh, someone believed that it's okay to kill, you know, a number of people just so that we can create an utopia or right. a theocracy, right? right? So is that, I mean, does everybody agree to that? Or is it just someone's subjective view that is a good thing, mm. right? 
yeah, many many religious minded people do have that in that intention, you know, to create a utopia, and and mm-hmm. and some communists also have exactly the same view that. I think that kind of utopian thinking is very dangerous. Yeah, yeah, it is. So let me actually bring it to more of a um, a practical situation. I I made reference in one of my episodes to uh, I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with Lori Laughlin. Uh, she was a she's an actress. She was a, a somewhat famous actress, mm-hmm. and she um, she has two daughters, and uh, she tried to get them into USC by bribing the admissions yes. right yeah, okay so you might be you, right you might yeah. be vaguely familiar with the story and uh i, I brought that one up that um in, in a previous episode because her intention may have been at least in her mind good she was trying to do well for her daughter she was trying to get her daughter into a pre- prestigious school she right. broke the rules and she's paid the consequences. She she went to jail uh, for like yeah. two months or something, and right. uh, so she paid some pretty serious consequences. And she right. was out the half a million dollars or whatever she paid to to mm. get them in, and the public scrutiny, all of that. Um, but in her mind, at the time that she did it, she may regret it now. But at the time, she might have thought she was doing something even benevolent or altruistic by giving up five hundred thousand dollars to to make her Mm. daughter's life better. So what, I guess you brought up subjectivity and objectivity. And when we, when we rely solely on intention as the basis for morality, then don't we just invite everyone's subjective morality into the, into the discussion, so to speak? Well, in that case, I mean, she was doing it for the, for the benefit of her daughters, but that, Mm. There is there should be also an understanding that when she's when she was doing that she was uh, actually giving her own children an edge over the other people. So the other I mean she was doing this at other people's expense. So right. so that that should be factored in. I mean you know. that should be factored in to her intention. Yeah. She should re- yeah. realize that her intention her intention is flawed. <laughs> so to speak, if she thinks she's only doing good. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So let me, uh, well, let me bring up a quote of yours that I've, uh, I've read in uh, one of your posts before. Um, That is, we must learn to distinguish between love and desire. Desire is instinctual. Love is a radical response based on wisdom. I I love that, but I kind of wrestle with it too. Specifically, I reckon. I rec- excuse me. I wrestle with reconciling the the Buddhist notion of detachment with, for example, the love I have for my wife. Uh, I, I mean, if I'm truly detached, should that mean I don't love anyone or anything? Yes, I mean the the whole no Buddhist notion of non-attachment. I think non-attachment is a better term than this. Actually, is it is is a paradox um, because uh, if someone has absolutely no attachment, right, then that person should not be attached to the notion of non-attachment either. You know, that's that's a paradox in itself, hmm. and and also the other you know uh, aspect is if you want to have 
to be in a state of desirelessness, right? Totally without passion in your life. Are you still a human being? <laughs> right? I mean, no. I mean, is that the Buddhist, <laughs> is that the Buddhist ideal to be a stone Buddha? You know, mm. I think, you know, a lot of Buddhists don't understand that. They thought that killing off emotions is the right way to go. I mean, that's definitely not, you know, what the Buddha taught, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I, I think, I don't know, my, uh, <laughs> my view is it, it, it's better to aim to be a, a bodhisattva than a, a Buddha. If, if you're, if you're trying to be, if you're trying to achieve nirvana, you're so attached to the, you, you, you paradoxically or ironically are further removed from it because you're, you're attached to this yeah. notion of complete enlightenment. And right. You know, Cause I mean, the, 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 the the Buddhist, the central Buddhist teaching can be expressed in this way, which is nothing is worth, you know, attachment to. Oh, so okay. even the notion of Buddhahood or the notion of enlightenment should not be an obsession, you know. Hmm. Um, so I so like the practice of non-attachment is is really a tricky thing, and and it's. Uh, it's a matter of balance and, and you should, I mean, and that's why, that's how mindfulness comes in. I mean, you should, you know, observe, basically you have some kind of awareness of yourself where you are in terms of your practice of non-attachment. I mean, in, in the sutras, there is a saying, I mean, a diamond sutra, there's a saying which says, even the Dharma should not be attached to, save the non-Dharma. So, you know, that's basically the, the, the key Buddhist uh, teaching. Yeah. And, the, and, and Buddha, yeah, Buddha compared, you know, his teaching to a raft, right? So what is a raft? A, a raft is just for temporary use. It's, it's totally provisional. It's not something that you should hold on to. Hmm. So there is a Buddhist, I mean, Buddha made a, a, a parable which says that, uh, you know, some person, you know, uh, was a traveler and he came to a body of water and there was no boat. So he had to build himself, you know, using some raw material, you know, to, to make himself a, a makeshift kind of raft to, to cross over. And, and then, but at the, after he has crossed over, he thought to himself, oh, this raft was so useful for me. I should carry it. I should carry it on my back so that I, I would always have it, you know, wherever I go. And Buddha asked his followers, I mean, is that the right kind of mindset? I mean, is that wise to do that? I mean, isn't, doesn't it become a burden? Right. So, so I mean, I think Buddha is the only spiritual teacher who never assigned any, you know, final value in his own teaching. I mean, you can you cannot find this anywhere else in in any guru or, or a spiritual teacher. Yeah, yeah. That it reminds me. There is a another Buddhist story, or it's not a koan, but uh, and I I probably get it wrong, but um, it's something like two, like maybe the master and the student are walking along, and the the they need a woman is in need of help or something. I, I sort of vaguely have yeah this, yeah that, uh, in they, my memory about a, a young girl. And two monks, right? 
Yes, yes. So the the the, the girl was trying to cross over, but uh, uh, there are two monks. I mean, monks are not supposed to even, you know, be in in in, in uh, close space with women. Right. It's safe to carry a woman, you know, <laughs> over and uh, uh, body of water. So and then the, so the younger, the, right? Go ahead. Yeah. So the. Um, so one one of the uh, brothers or the, one of the monks carried this lady across mm. the river or the stream, and then the other monk was uh, after this happened. The the other monk was complaining and and you know uh, criticizing you know his brother you know, and, and saying that he has done something which is in, inappropriate. Mm. Um, and and the and the and the monk the other monk says, "Well, I have already put down the the, the woman. How come you're still carrying it in your mind? You're still carrying yeah. her, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, at the end of each episode, I do a short segment called Five Minutes Zen. In it, mm -hmm. I try to offer the listener some pragmatic thing or thought that they can implement in their day. Um, so, in your case, uh, you have previously said you have previously said that we should learn to accept suffering as grace, that we should embrace suffering. Um, yes. what, is a what is a realistic way to deal with suffering? Yeah, a lot of Buddhists, you know, um, thought that uh, once a person gets enlightened, then the person would be living permanently in bliss, and there right. would be, you know, you'll be living a problem-free life. But that's 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 really not true. I mean, Buddha never said that. In, in fact, what is the first noble truth? The first noble truth is the truth of suffering, or, or the truth of. Uh, I think suffering is a bad translation. The the, the Pali word is called dukkha. So lie. Uh, I mean, it's the truth of dukkha, which is the state of unsatisfactoriness of life. Um, and, you know, Buddha never made an exception for the Arahans or the enlightened ones. Basically, everybody are in that state. So to think that, um, you know, somehow you can reach a state without suffering or any kind of, you know, unsatisfactoriness. I mean, that, that's, that's a myth. You know, we, we yeah. should not perpetuate that, that myth. And I, I think that, are you familiar with the work of uh, Scott Peck, who, who wrote uh, the book, The Road Less Traveled? No, I'm not. Yeah, he has a very good saying, you know, um, about the first noble truth, which is that uh, he said, life is difficult. It's mm -hmm. only if we can accept the fact that life is difficult that we can transcend it. If you believe, if you even have a slight expectation in your mind that life should be happy all the time, then, then you are trapped. I yeah, mean, the pursuit yeah. of happiness always leads to unhappiness. So, yeah. so it's, it's kind of like an inverse law, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and th th there's a Buddhist story, you know, which illustrates the point, which is a very beautiful story about Kisa Gotami, you know, who is... Uh, who later became a Buddhist nun. 
And uh, the story says that uh, Gotami was, uh, was a woman who was married into a rich family. And she was lucky to have birthed a, uh, a, a boy, you know. And in those old days, I mean, it was very important to have a son. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, the, the infant died, you know, very early. So Gotami was uh, stricken with uh, grief so much that she became mad and she, she went around town carrying the dead infant on her back. And everybody was so horrified. And you know, finally, there was uh, a wise elder who advised her to go and seek advice of Buddha. And she did. And Buddha you know, met with her and, and Buddha says, the only way that I can help you is when, if you go you know, door to door and knock on the, the door of each house and ask for some mustard seeds, but there's a caveat to that. It's not just getting the mustard seeds from the household, but it has to be mustard seeds from a household which has never experienced death in the family. Mm. And uh, so Kutami went door to door, you know, she, she spent a whole day. And at the end of the day, she could not find any, you know, such family without, uh, uh, which is a household without experiencing death. And then finally, she came to the realization that she was expecting something which is unreasonable, you know, because right. every family that she spoke to has had death in a family and she should not, you know, expect to be an exception. So, so upon that realization is some, is almost like some, like the scales fell off from, from her eyes, you know, uh, she became, you know, essentially enlightened. So, so the death of her own child, you know, that this did not bother her anymore. Uh, so she eventually became joined the sangha, became a nun, and then the according to Buddhist tradition, she became an arahant. She was enlightened. Hmm. So, so that that is a good uh, illustration of how Buddhist healing works. I mean, it, it, Buddha has no magic. I mean, it, it, Buddha, you know, would not perform, you know, miracles like raising the dead, just like Lazarus. Right? Right? <laughs> Buddhist, Buddhist, uh, you know, healing is always, you know, uh, from the view. I mean, the the practitioner or the student has to do something on his own or on her own. She has to come to a realization. Of her own craziness or, or the, you know, <laughs> like it's insanity. Yeah. yeah. So once you see that insanity, then you have hope. I mean, then you can change. Yeah. And it's about accepting what is, which is that everybody dies and everybody, mm. you know, you know, life is impermanent. If and you not, can not accept, a, yeah. 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 And not only, I mean, something that I've come to terms with too, not only accepting the, what is but my sort of natural reaction to it so you know my my mother passed away recently not only accepting that fact but also accepting my own sadness of it yeah you know i mean yeah. and not not trying to suppress it or fight against it but just you know accepting that that is part of it too so. yeah we can we can look at it very positively i mean it's not just surrendering to what life has brought you but 
embracing the fullness of life. I mean, life has both ups and downs. I mean, life right. has, you know, happiness and sadness. I mean, if you can embrace everything that life mm. has brought you, then you know that's that's a state of enlightenment. Yeah, yeah I agree. Do Do you have an opinion on Eckhart Tolle? Mm, I have read very little of him. You know, but oh, I, okay. I know. So so far, I, I like what I I see. You know, I mean, he, his his thing is the the power of now. Like you know, I you know it, it it's in essence a very similar message to as much as reasonably possible. Bring your uh, actually, I think his aspirations might be somewhat unreasonable, but and unattainable. But I like to say as reasonably possible. Bring your mind to the present moment. You know, yeah. as much as you can. Um, okay, well, that is all for this episode. Uh, yeah. Although I'm still pretty far away from Nirvana, maybe I'm a, a step closer after talking to you, Ken. So, <laughs> oh, thank, th you. thank you. Yeah. Uh, Ken, if someone wanted to learn more from you, because I, I learn every time I see one of your posts, I really, no pressure, I don't want you to feel pressured, but I, every time I see one of your posts, you know, I give it sort of special attention. Um, what what Facebook group should they, I know that you're an admin on at least one or two, what should they follow? If, uh, they they should come to uh, my group, which is called What the Buddha Taught. Yeah, that that's where I focus a lot of my effort, you know, is is to, you know, okay. make Buddhism understandable to the lay person. Yeah. Oh, perfect. That's, yeah. yeah. All right. What the Buddha taught. And uh, what are you working on these days? Are you, do you have a project or? <laughs> I have so many things all the time, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm the most uh, unlike Zen when it comes to my personal efforts because <laughs> I have so many things which are, you know, uh, that I'm working on all the time. But uh, yeah. Uh, the modernization of Buddhism is one of the project, and it's a long time. It's a long-term project. Let me see. It's uh, I've gone back to Krishnamurti. Um, oh, yeah, nice. Because I mean, I I have you know learned from Krishnamurti back in the nineties. I've come back to him, and uh, mm. I think um, Krishnamurti is kind of like the modern Buddha, um, and. Mm. Um, if you understand it, yeah. what, it, yeah, if you understand what he's saying, then yeah, it would it would help you. Yeah, yeah and I, I find it's useful to come back to my origins a lot. Like one of the first uh, people who influenced me was Alan Watts, and then yeah. you know I went on to other things and uh, other people and other books, and, uh, and I've read books by the Dalai Lama. And then recently I came back and was rereading stuff that I read 20 years ago by Alan yeah. Watts. And, uh, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, I had a beginner's mind all over again. It's, it was, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, these people never dogmatic and that's what I like about them. Yeah. They never, yeah. you know, with some kind of uh, dogma or, and, and they never regard themselves as a guru. Yeah. It's mm. uh, so, so Krishnamurti's famous saying is that truth is a pathless land. So <laughs> there's no mm. path. That yeah. Can, I, I, I think the moment you bring dogma into it, uh, you you immediately uh, separate yourself from the message, you know, because like, you when the message is to love and, you know, I think you can get that from a lot of different traditions, but then you start to lay down the rules. Here's the dogma, you know, yeah. well, then then you're so focused on that you forget the the real message in the first place. Right. 
Well, uh, well, thanks again. Uh, if you like the episode, uh, tell a friend, subscribe and review. I thank you in advance for that. Uh, send me your questions or topics to zensamich at gmail.com. Ken, thanks again. It has been a okay. pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Yeah, Mark. Yeah. This, happened, this right. is my pleasure.